Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. So the man singing behind us, in front of us, behind me, this is Chris Parrish. He uh, used to be in charge of worship years and years ago, um, but then we decided that he wasn't quite making the cut as a musician for Rimrock Downtown. And so I found him a spot on the teaching team. Um, but now, with his accompanying right hand, I don't know, what do you think, we invite him back for more? My goodness. It's like we're living in the glory days for me. Incredible. So my name's Evan. I'm the pastor down here. I got two things to tell you before we jump into the Bible. I hope that's why you're here, to worship God in the Bible. Um, but we're also a community. So the first thing, um, most of you probably know Tim and Becca Elward. Uh, they got three daughters, Jane, Ruby, and Lois. They are moving away from us on Friday. Tim is the angel-like voice behind the piano that we see up here quite often. Um, they were unfortunately unable to make it, but I just wanted to make a formal announcement to let you know that they're following God's direction back to Oregon in Portland. Um, I will give you guys their address and things like that for any of you that want to send him um, kind of a card, send them a card. So just give you guys a heads up on that. The second thing, we're going to have baptism, communion baptism. We're going to have baptism next week, downtown. First time we've ever done it. Right, we have an individual from our community that feels led by God to be baptized. Now, baptism has nothing to do with salvation, but it has everything to do with open proclamation of your faith in Jesus. And, and I've seen powerful things occur in at least two people that I got the opportunity to baptize once they came out of the water. And so if this is something you haven't done, something you feel that's been on your mind, you have an opportunity next week, about 11.15, right here. We'll have a 40-gallon dunk tank. If you're interested in this, if you have questions about it, whatever, just come and talk to me, Derek, anybody. All right. So let me, as I get set up, we are in 1 John. We've been in 1 John now for who knows how long, a month and a half. Um, the interesting thing about 1 John, I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but it's extremely deep and complex. And my goal with downtown is to teach you how to study this, to give you tools so that way you can get into it on your own. The passage that we're looking at today, it's got from 11 to 24, 13, 14 verses, but if I had an hour and a half, I could maybe cover it. And so I don't want to do that to you guys. And so what I'm going to be doing is just kind of giving you more guidelines with the hopes that you can then jump into it on your own. There's a study guide out out of the sanctuary on your right-hand side. There's one online, small groups, all these different things. So this is more of just an entry point. But I encourage you guys this often. Walk away with just one thing from the next half an hour. Just one thing. Our minds and our lives are full, but just lock in on one thing. Something to pray about, think about, talk to your spouse, kids, whomever. So that way your life can be changed. Okay. So last week, Chris walked us through the first part of chapter 3, teaching us the power of one's identity. Our identity, or as Chris put it, who we are and whose we are is what determine what we do. Our words and actions flow directly from our core, the foundation of who we are. In many ways, our identity is like a seed. Everything we see growing out of the ground first began with a seed. The plant and the fruit, the things that are visible and obvious, grew out of what was buried and hidden. The same is true for us. If you show that first slide, Chris. 
our words and actions, the choices that we make, the things that we do that are visible and obvious, stem out of the deeper part of who we are, our identity. Because of this, in order to change our behaviors, we must always go back to where they came from, our understanding of who we are and whose we are. In the first part of chapter 3, John led his audience, those who had openly proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah, know that they are children, they are God's children. We see this in chapter 3, verse 1. See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. If you've cried out to Jesus to save you from your own foolishness, then you are also a child of God. This is your spiritual identity. You have been born again into the holy and righteous family. In Romans 6.4, Paul uses Jesus' death and resurrection as a metaphor for what happened to us spiritually. Therefore, we, children of God, have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. When we become a part of God's family, our identity as a lost and rebellious sinner is put to death. We have been crucified with Christ, but it doesn't stop there. We have been also been brought back to life, raised as a child of God, one who is fully loved by and connected with the almighty maker of heaven and earth. In 1 John 3, 9, John lets his readers know what the natural byproduct is of our identity that we now have. Those who have been, I like this version better, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Obeying God, which is the opposite of sin, naturally grows out of our identity as children of God. According to John, when a person is born of God, their, their soul has been restored because of this, they are unable to continually produce seed. Excuse me, continually produce sin. Chris gave a really good example of this from his own life last week. But it's extremely important to know that John does not mean that we are unable to sin. He has simply explained that when someone's soul has been made new, we are, and we are directly inhabited by the Spirit of God, we will no longer naturally gravitate towards selfish and wicked behavior. Instead, we will, we will inherently long to do what our Creator wants us to do. But we still have a choice. And there is still a battle raging within us. A battle between spirit and our selfishness. Or what the Bible calls our flesh. We get this from Galatians 5, 16. Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the spirit, and what the spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you want. Did you catch how Paul started with a command? Which means we have a choice. Yes, we are a new creation spiritually. And as Chris pointed out, our minds and our emotions, our willpower, are being slowly transformed into the image of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. But, this side of heaven, we will never be perfect because of the sin of this world and our fallen nature. Because of this, we must fight to show our identity, who we are and whose we are. As John continues his letter, I believe that this is what he wants his audience to know. All right, I'm going to read some Bible, six verses. 1 John 3, 11 through 17. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. 
We must not be like Cain, who was from the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be astonished, brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love one another. Whoever does not love abides in death. All who hate a brother and sister are murderers, and you know that murderers do not have eternal life abiding in them. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses to help? Like I said before, heavy, complex. There's a lot in this. Now before we start interpreting, I want to remind us of the importance of context. There are one-liners in these verses that cause people to believe sad things about the Bible and Christianity. One has caused people, really a really large group of people, to believe, to think that murdering is a cardinal sin. One that causes you to lose your salvation. But the only way for John to be saying that is when the reader pulls that verse out of context. Instead of looking at the entire letter or even just this passage, the section, they simply grab the verse and use it in whatever way they desire. If we want to understand what an author is really communicating, we must consider context, what he said before and what he says after. My hope this morning is to give you an understanding of the overall message of this passage that John is trying to get to his reader so that through this context, you can think and maybe struggle through these harder passages on your own. Hope that makes sense. So what I see here is after describing the nature of a person's identity in the first part of chapter 3, you're either a child of God or you're a child of the devil. John then hones in on a specific type of behavior or a fruit of our identity, loving or hating one another. I believe that he wants to give his church obvious ways to evaluate their identity the what and what they are living out of, almost like a litmus test. Are they functioning as redeemed children of God, who they really are? Or as broken and selfish children of this world, which is who they used to be? Just because your identity, the fundamental part of who you are, this because of what the fundamental part of who you are is, does not mean that you have to live like that is true. A foundational truth about our reality is that we have been created with free will, the ability to choose. Out of our choices comes our way of life. John saw that every person is continually given a choice. Do I love or do I hate? Do I bring life or do I bring death? Let's read those verses one more time, 11 through 15. One thing for me as a student of the Bible, repetition. Reading and rereading and rereading is how we really hone in on it. For this is a message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We must not be like Cain, who was from the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be astonished, brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed from life, death to life because we love one another. Whoever does not love abides in death. All who hate a brother or sister are murderers, and you know that murderers do not have eternal life abiding in them. Now I believe to catch our attention and to show us the reality of the power of our choices on how we treat each other, John zooms out to 30,000 feet. In verse 12, he states that Cain was from the evil one. In verse 15, he says that whoever hates a brother is a murderer. 
In verse 14, the other side of it, he states that we know a person has moved from spiritual death to life when they love others. Now for me, I interpret that John wants us to know the basics. Go ahead and put up that next slide if you would. God brings love which leads to life. The evil one, Satan, and our fallen human nature bring hate which leads to death. Go ahead and leave that one up too if you would. Now prior to studying this message, I never saw my interactions with others so clearly defined. I knew that God was good and that Satan and my flesh were bad. But I never connected all of my choices to one or the other. I also knew that loving people was good and hating people was bad, but I never connected love to life and hate to death. By viewing life this way, my way, it is so easy for me not to realize that I'm either functioning as a child of God or as a child of the devil. It's also so easy for me to overlook the seriousness of every single choice I made. I yelled at my kid, not that big of a deal. I talked smack about so-and-so behind their back, oh well. But if I view it through the filter that John has laid out, the importance of my everyday choices becomes far more apparent. It means that when I choose to be unloving, like when I'm impatient or condescending, or selfish with my time and resources, or when I'm judgmental or envious or rebellious against the authority that's been placed over me, like not wearing a mask in stores that require it. I am operating as a child of the devil. That doesn't mean that I'm no longer a saved child of God, but I am living out of the principles of the evil one. According to John, there is no in-between. We see this in verse 14. Whoever does not love abides in death. There is no middle ground between good and evil or light and darkness. Let me show you a couple other verses. Luke 1. This is talking a prophecy about Jesus. By the tender mercy of God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. John 12, this is from Jesus. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me should not remain in darkness. In both of these verses, as well as many others, God is described as light, and anything that is not from him is darkness. In the world of science, light and darkness are polar opposites from one another. Darkness is defined as the partial or total absence of light. The same is true in the spiritual realm. You either have God and his goodness and his love or a complete absence of God, his goodness, and his love. That means that we have, when we choose to love or hate someone, we are either living as children of God or children of the devil. Again, according to John, there is no in-between. I've been wrestling with this one all week long. For me, it makes my choices in my day-to-day -day life far more serious. I'm not just living for myself and out of my own worldview. With each of my choices, I am promoting either God or the evil one by living out of either the world of light or the world of darkness. And the consequences of my choices, they're not trivial. According to John, our choices are ultimately leading to life or death. Because God is a source of life, his ways will lead to life. Big picture, God can bring us eternal life but he also brings life in our every day. The fruits of the Spirit. You guys have heard these before, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, 
generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If these are the fruits of the Spirit, that means that they are all God-given qualities. For my 38 years of experience, when I live out of these characteristics or I'm around other people that do, there is no better place to be. Out of these come life. Out of these, I'm able to live the best way I possibly can. And the opposites are just as obvious. Here are some antonyms of the fruits of the Spirit. For those of you that haven't been in an English class in 20 years, antonyms mean opposites, right? Hate, misery, conflict, cruelty, greed, untrustworthy, inconsiderate, and impulsive. Whenever I exhibit any of these qualities or surrounded by those that do, my ability to live life well is inhibited. Out of these come chaos, destruction, and ultimately death. If they're not from God, that means they come from the evil one, Satan or our flesh. And this one has been striking to me. When I look at the simple choices I make every day through this black and white filter, it shows me the seriousness of what I choose. Each choice is either moving me towards what is good or what is bad. I'm stepping up into light or down into darkness. There is no level path. I'm even either stepping towards life or towards death. When someone else is involved with my choices, I'm either pulling them into the world of love, joy, and peace, or pushing them into the place of hate, misery, and conflict. And this isn't connected to just the obvious types of interactions, like a fight between you and your spouse, or a blow-up between you, your boss, your employees, people at work. According to John, whenever we interact with anyone, we are either loving them or hating them. We are either bringing them life or death. Let me give you an example from my own life. So my family and I just got back from a vacation down in a place that's not so nice called Florida. Right? My son, eight-year-old um, from second grade, was pulled out of about nine days' worth of class. And as a former teacher, I was pretty serious about him keeping up on his work. But you place an eight-year-old boy in the middle of the world's largest sandbox, you take him to places like Legoland, school doesn't seem to be all that interesting to him. Right? And as I would try to encourage him to go back to it, often we would have small sorts of negative interactions. He would fight back. What I discovered, based on my reaction to him, things would either move to better or worse. I would either quickly enforce the rule and look at him like he was wrong, or I would sit down with him, hear his thoughts, and gently encourage him of why he needs to do what he needs to do. My reaction either led to him being more frustrated with intense emotions and a temporary breakdown of our relationship, or it led to him willingly doing his work, enjoying it, and our relationship staying strong. Hope you're seeing that. It seems like so subtle and slight, but it's either life or death. You know, John gives another example to his church that he was writing to, most likely something that they were dealing with. Verse 17. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses help? I'll let you think and pray through that one. You know, as I've started to view my day-to-day -day life through this filter that every choice is either leading to life or death, I'm beginning to see the power that is in my hands. And with that power, the responsibility that I have been given. As a child of God, I'm called to love, not hate. 
bring life, not death. And this is a responsibility that I have every day, all day long. It's a bit of a heavy weight, isn't it? So now we've got to ask the question, how? How do we do this? How do we live as children of the light? I feel like John shows us two things. We need to be selfless, not selfish. We need to be dependent, not independent. We'll start with selfish, not self. Selfish? Yeah. Selfless, not selfish. In these verses, John gives us two, two examples. One that represents darkness and one that represents light. We see this in verse 12 and verse 16. The first one, darkness. We must not be like Cain, who was from the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. The second one, selfless. It's Jesus. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. Let's jump to the, back of the, or to the beginning of the Bible. Let's look at Cain's story really quick. You've definitely heard the story of Cain and Abel. But we see this in Genesis 4. We'll just read the first five verses. Now the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. Next she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a tiller of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, for his part, brought the firstlings of his flock, their fat portions. And the Lord had regarded for Abel and his had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Let me give you a quick interpretation. Now Abel gave the first and the best of what he had, and Cain did not. Cain most likely gives out of his excess. Because God desires to be our priority, he let both men know his thoughts. This put Cain into an emotional tailspin. But because God cared about Cain, he talks to him, letting him know the choice that still lies ahead of him. Verses 6 and 7. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Go ahead and leave that one up for a bit. Now God tells Cain the battle that he's in. A battle between honoring himself or honoring God. Between being selfless or selfish. God also lets him know the seriousness of his choice. If you choose to be selfish, then sin, or as John would put it, hate, death, will become your master and you will be dragged into darkness. In verse 7, God describes it in a very powerful way. Almost as if sin is an, is e almost if evil is an animal, a predator, stalking him, waiting for the right moment to take him out. And based on Cain's choice, this is exactly what happens. He chooses to be selfish and then is consumed by his flesh. But John gives us another example, one who chose to be selfless. 1 John 3.16 We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, it's so easy to gloss over the gravity of Jesus' choice to become man and die an unjust death for us. But in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, Paul lays out the significance of this choice, his choice to be selfless. 
Let the same mind be in you that it was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. I don't know that there's any more selfless description of a person. Because Jesus chose to be obedient, to selflessly sacrifice for humanity, life came not only to us, but also to him. Right? Jesus is our example. Let's see what happens in verses 9 through 11. Therefore, because of his humility, because of his selflessness, because of his obedience, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because Jesus mastered the human desire to do whatever is best for self, he won the day. His selfless approach towards others brought healing and restoration to a broken and hopeless people. His humility placed him back in his proper place as ruler of everything. His choices to love brought life. And the more that I think and pray through this idea, the more that I see all of our choices can be boiled down into two categories. Selfish or selfless. Caring more about me or caring more about someone else. One stems from God and leads to life. The other from the evil and leads to death. But man, let's be honest. Being selfish is a natural way for us to live, isn't it? Self-preservation and self-sufficiency are American qualities. So how then do we become selfless? Dependent, not independent. We become selfless by be depending more on God and less on self. To live the way that brings life to others and to ourselves, we must be fully dependent on God, our Father. That's exactly what Jesus did. If you wouldn't mind, Philippians 2, 8. Hmm. Keep going. Yeah, thank you. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Catch that word, obedient. You know, John speaks of this, for this thing as well. 1 John 3, 18 through 24. Finish up our passage. Little children, let us love, not in word or speech, but in truth and action. My goodness, I would say that's one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. I've got to read it again. Little children, let us love, not in word or speech, but in truth and action. And by this we know that we are from the truth. And we'll, we, and we'll reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have boldness before God, and we receive everything from him, we receive from him whatever we ask, because we obey his commandments and do whatever, what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we should believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. All who obey his commandments abide in him, and he abides in them. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit he has given us. Man, there's a lot in these verses, and we're running out of time. So I just want to focus in on the last verse to kind of make this point that I feel like Paul, John's given. More dependent on him, less on ourselves. 
to verse 24. All who obey his commandments abide in him, and he abides in them. And by this we know he abides in us by the spirit that he has given us. When we choose to listen to God and follow his instructions on, that he gives us on how to live, on how we should treat other people, then we will be immersed in life. Because God is the source of life, it, is only, it only comes to us by being dependent on his commands, his principles of how we should act. When we do this, then we are able to bring life to ourselves and to others. But we can't choose to only be dependent on God's rules. We must also be dependent on God's power. John said, whoever obeys his commandment abides in him, and he abides in them. Catch that. It's so easy to glance over that. But God himself, the one who caused the sun to rise today, the one who put breath in your lungs, abides in his children. By this we know he abides in us by the spirit that he has given us. That's just incredible. I hope you take a little time to think through that. For everyone who is a child of God, they have been given direct access to their Father. This happens through the Holy Spirit. With purified hearts, God has the ability to directly interact with our minds and our emotions. That means that we can be overpowered, right? And then empowered to be selfless, empowered to love others, empowered to bring light into darkness. And this power to overcome our innate selfishness solely comes from our Creator and our Savior. Not from positive thoughts, not from this idea that love can win. It is from God Himself. To experience this life-changing and life-giving power, we must become more dependent on God and less dependent on ourselves. In the same way we make choices every day, all day long, to either love or hate others, we also have that same choice to depend on God or depend on ourselves and our culture. For me, I've found that meditation and repetition are crucial techniques to remind me of this choice. When I start my day with more of you, less of me. More of you, less of me. Before I get up, before I move around, more of you, less of me. That's from John the Baptist saying that. When I bring this phrase back to my mind throughout my day, more of you, less of me. While I'm interacting with individuals, while I'm on the phone for my business, while I'm up here preaching, more of you, less of me. It brings this choice back to my mind continually. Love or hate selfless or selfish, God or Evan. With this awareness comes the power of choice. As Chris, Emery, come back up, maybe just Chris, just practice that with me. Just close our eyes, remove distractions. More of you, less of me. <laughs> 